Hello and welcome to Outback Stories, a podcast about extraordinary people living in the bush. You're joined as always by regional journalists Lucy Samuels and Lucy Taylor. Aerodynamic method was beautiful. It didn't have any faults. You asked it to do something and it did it. And, uh, and the next one in line it was the Boeing 747. That's a beautiful aeroplane. And he said, what are you going to do? I said, well, I'll fly an aircraft if I can get one. He says, come with me. He said, we'll go to Qantas to the other employer. And we, we, we walk around the corner to the office and I was employed right on the spot. So as soon as you stepped back onto Australian soil, yeah. you had a job. Yeah. How long were you with Qantas? 37 years. Hello and welcome to another week of an extraordinary podcast. This week, I want you to sit back, relax and enjoy all that Lawrence Clark, a 96-year-old pilot, has to offer. It will blow your mind. But before we cut to the chase, I wanted to change things up. I've written a bit of an intro and no matter what you're doing right now, I just want you to stop and appreciate all that Lawrence has seen and done. His story is truly spectacular. It's 1942 and Lawrence Clark is climbing into a plane, a Sunderland to be specific. He's part of the Australian Air Force and has been selected to fly within the Australian Squadron, an elite few selected to fly in England during World War II. But what happens when the fighting stops and you head home after three years abroad? Well, you start working for Australia's largest aviation company, of course. Qantas hired Lawrence just moment after his feet were planted firmly on home soil and he continued with them for over 37 years flying around the world, being a test pilot in some of the world's first and most notable planes. Just late last year, Qantas retired the Queen of the Skies, the last Boeing 747 in a spectacular farewell flight out of Sydney to California where it was mothballed. The jumbo was extremely popular and familiar to all of us, and of course to Lawrence. In fact, Lawrence was one of the first pilots to ever fly a Boeing 747, and he shows us his logbook, clocking up tens of thousands of hours. But his most notable flight was in 1971, his first flight out of Seattle to deliver Qantas's first Boeing 747 to the Kingsford Smith Airport in Sydney. In this podcast, Lawrence tells us of his time working alongside Freddie Fox, a dear friend and captain. He tells us of growing up during the Depression and his time in the war and flying around the world after. Oh, and I think I forgot to mention, Lawrence had a stint flying for the royal family too. So without much further ado, this is Lawrence Clark. Enjoy. Can you tell us about your days in the Air Force and when you were at war? Well, we did boot camp at uh, Narandra and uh, we got our wings uh, at, at Narandra. Uh, that took about uh, six weeks to, to do that. And once we got our wings, we we sent to uh, to an advanced flying training school, the Bomb and Command in Bundaberg, and uh, we did all the exercises that a Bomb and Command is supposed to do. And and uh, from that, uh, we were just an ordinary airman while we were doing that. And uh, I, uh, when I 
graduated and they presented me with officer stripes. <laughs> so I became a pilot officer right, right from the word uh, jump and then as I say they sent us back to Sydney and we had three weeks off there and then and then they put us on a ship and sent us to England and we were in England for three years. Can you tell us about that time? Yes, well, when we got to uh, England, we went in buses from Greenwich down through London to Brighton and uh, there was a hotel right on the shoreline at Brighton and uh, it happened to be right in the way where all the German fighters and bombers used to come across. So that was quite normal in those days, you just had to put up with that. But when we got to, to Brighton, they had a notice board there and we were walking in with the group and I just walked over to the notice board I saw a sort of pinned notice up there that said, uh, pilots wanted for an Australian squadron. So I went and saw the adjutant straight away and he signed me up for the Australian squadron. The Australian squadron happened to be 10th squadron which was one of Australia's leading squadrons and they had a, a squadron of aircraft in, in, uh, at uh, Plymouth Harbour, uh, that's in Devon and uh, they had a very nice setup there, it used to be a, a, a naval base at one stage but the, the officers quarters and, and the crew quarters and everything like that were uh, a little bit better than the average, uh, you know, we, we had a, a two-storey building, we had uh, billiard rooms, we, we had everything, you know, we had uh, dining rooms and billiard rooms and, and uh, general gathering rooms and what have you, it was quite a big building. But uh, we were, uh, I, I joined the aircraft, uh, joined a the crew there when I got there, I was, uh, I was a pilot officer but I became, I was, became the third pilot as uh, I was only 18 years of age and, uh, and uh, I used to work the radar and uh, you know, do all the odd jobs around the, the aircraft and uh, man, man the, uh, the, what, we, we had several geo guns and things like that that we used to put out through waste windows when we were being attacked. And, yeah. They called you porcupines didn't they? Yeah. Why was that? Well, we could uh, we had twenty eight guns in the one aircraft. In the one aircraft, and uh, we, you know, we had a, a tail gun, we had two waist guns, and uh, a mid upper gun, and our nose guns, and galley guns, and cockpit guns, <laughs> everywhere. And uh, of course, we all had to man these sort of things. It uh, we had two very serious attacks that I was involved in. We had uh, a battle with eight German JU-88s, that was a twin fighter bomber. Against one of your planes? Against one of our planes. And uh, we were pretty badly shot up in the finish and uh, none, of, none of us were seriously injured. I had a front tooth missing or something like that. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how it left me or anything like that. But, but we, we, we gave a pretty good account of ourselves. But they, uh, they, 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 they broke off the engagement after when they could see that they weren't getting anywhere. And they wouldn't attack us unless they had at least six aircraft coming in at once. Was it scary? Were you scared? 
You never had time to be scared. You just did your job. That's just all there was to it. And, uh, as I say, we were pretty lucky we didn't have any uh, serious counts. We had casualties where they had minor injuries. We had two two heavy bouts like that. Uh, that, uh, that was in the early days. And then after that, we had uh, uh, British air cover over the top of us. Uh, they took care of any, any attacks that came and uh, they protected our aircraft away. And, uh, your squadron became like your family, didn't it? It did, it did. We had uh, 12, 12 men on a crew and uh, uh, we each, we, we all, we had one aeroplane between us. We had G for George and uh, after each particular sortie that we'd been on, uh, we'd come back and the next morning we'd go down and we'd all get on the aircraft and clean it all up and, and then meet in the wardroom and have a discussion about all of our business and what have you. And uh, I worked my way up from uh, from third pilot to uh, to captain. Um, it took, took, took about 18 months until I got there. And what, you were 19 I by was, this stage? I, I was 20 years of age. So, oh, wow. Yeah. And uh, I had a very, what shall I say, uh, efficient crew, though they were pretty good. We had a pretty good discipline and everything like that, and uh, I think we acquitted ourselves pretty well. And uh, most of the our flying was done at, you know, 14 hour, 16 hour flights over the Atlantic. At, it could be anything from Spain up to, to Norway. Wow. And did you fly over any frontline action? Yes, and I, I the, the morning of the invasion of Europe, uh, I got up, uh, we, were, we were called early and we were briefed to take our aircraft over to Cherbourg uh, in France and then uh, to patrol from Cherbourg to Brest and uh, 20 miles out to sea and to engage any, any enemy aircraft or surface vessels and things like that to keep them away from that Cherbourg uh, uh, area. And that's where they made the, the initial landing and we, we saw the initial landing, the, we saw the troops running up the beach and, and they were not doing too well, I can tell you that, you know, that was obviously being uh, wounded and shot and what have you, but, but it was only a glimpse, you know, like as we flew by, we couldn't we couldn't hang around. We went through to to Brest to do our job, and uh, but the the sight of going over to America, going over to uh, France, was that uh, when we left Plymouth Harbour and got to the ocean, there was line after line after line after ships as far as you could see, all coming in the line and turning right at Plymouth and getting, heading for France. And uh, you've never seen an armada like it. It was absolutely, they were all the troop ships going across to, to make the invasion of, of Europe. Not something easily forgotten. No, not easily forgotten. 
how did you feel when you hopped in the plane when you're about to embark on you know a day's work like that you didn't think about that you just got on with your job and did, did your work and did it the best you could do it yeah. and uh, I think if you start to stop to think about that you you'd get the trouble mental trouble or something like that but uh, what should I say we were you had to have faith in yourself and faith in your group and things like that so you do it the best you can and uh, I think we did pretty well. When you returned from war three years ago, what did you do after war? Well, I, as I say, I, I landed and uh, I, I, I came home in September 45. Most of the people came back in August, but uh, uh, I was kept back on the squadron to do a couple of odd jobs and uh, so I was to find my own way, way home later on that year. And I, I found a ship for the cabin and I got back to, to Sydney in September and uh, I, as I put foot in the shore of the, another, the, one of the other pilots that, that had joined the squadron with me, Phil Oakley, uh, he was there. Uh, uh, he'd been back in Australia a couple of months and he was flying for Qantas up to New Guinea and back. I met him on the wharf when I uh, got off the ship and he said, what are you going to do? I said, I'll fly an aircraft if I can get one. He says, come with me. He said, we'll go to Qantas, I'll tell other employers. And we, we, we walked around the corner to the office and I was employed right on the spot. Wow. Yeah. So as soon as you stepped back onto Australian soil, yeah. you had a job. Yeah. But, uh, How long did that last? How long were you with Qantas? 37 years. Can you tell us about moving up the scale? Well, I uh, started like all, uh, what shall I say, pilots in a new uh, environment. I had to start at the bottom, work your way up. And uh, that's what we did. And I, uh, I had the advantage of having a, a thousand hours of command flying on Sunderlands and they were flying Sunderlands out to the Pacific Islands and I uh, got a job as a captain there. But after then, when that packed in, I had to come back and go back to a, a co-pilot and work my way up through uh, uh, the DC-2s, DC-3s and DC-4s, Constellations, and uh, 707s, and then the 747s. And, uh, you know, you had to, you had to uh, what shall I say, uh, join, join the, uh, the queue, sort of thing. <laughs> but uh, it was ne never a, what, a dull moment, it was always something. And you were stationed in America at one stage, weren't you? Yes, I, uh, we used to go to uh, Seattle. There was a, another pilot, this, we were development pilots, and he by the name of Cedric Fox. We used to call him Freddie Fox. He didn't like the one, didn't like Cedric. <laughs> and uh, we used to do all the test flying of the new aircraft that were coming out of the factories, whether it was at Lockheed or Boeing or 
things like that. And we, we would also do the, uh, uh, make sure that, uh, you know, everything was according to the contract uh, on the, the, the airplane that uh, the company had ordered, that everything was there and uh, we used to take two or three days checking the airplane out and test flying it and, and uh, making sure it was, uh, you know, the way the company wanted it. And then when when we had finished that, they they paid for it and we flew it home. And it, it joined the uh, the Qantas uh, the Qantas fleet. Can you tell us about uh, flying your first seven four seven? What did it feel like? Well, just like an aeroplane. <laughs> Gosh, Lizzie. But, but quite honestly, the seven four seven. It was a lovely aeroplane to handle. The the, the the best aeroplane that I flew was uh, the Super Constellation. That was a four-engine propeller aircraft. But aerodynamically, it, it was beautiful. It didn't have any faults. And, you know, you asked it to do something, and it did it sort of thing. And uh, and the next one in line it was the Boeing Seven Four Seven. That's a beautiful aeroplane. And you flew it. You were one of the first pilots to fly it. You flew it from Seattle to Sydney. Tell us about that trip. Oh, well, it was, uh, it was just another, another trip, really, from, uh, you know, from, uh, we took off from uh, Seattle and just flew direct to Sydney, and that was a little trip with the, with the Australian crew. Hmm? When you were test flying the 747, didn't you have a little malfunction? There was a malfunction in the plane? Oh yes, we had, uh, we had, uh, they, they had just fitted auto throttle to an aircraft. And uh, auto throttle was, was, had a number of functions. And I took the aeroplane off and to put it through its paces and I found that if you were, yeah, say, say you had a, a, a false landing and you had to go around again and had to, 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 to take off again. And if you were in a landing condition, you'd have your flaps out, you'd have your gear down and everything like that. You had this auto throttle working. And if you put on the power to go around and do another approach and landing and raised your gear, the aeroplane would have stalled. And uh, it was at fault in the in the aeroplane system. And uh, I pointed that out to Boeing and they were most grateful. Uh, you know, to think that a thing like that had got away on them. Uh, it's just a, what shall I say, a normal routine for me to, to work out, you know, what, how, how it would happen. But it would have stalled an aeroplane at a low altitude and it wouldn't have been able to recover without an accident. And uh, they were most grateful for that, for that uh, I bet they looked after you after they that. They really looked after me. I look everywhere I went in America, if I was going to a city or a town, or I'd flown there, 
want to get there and there'll be a brand new car waiting for me and it'll be buying, buying, looking after me. Of course, when I retired, all that sort of went away. But, <laughs> <laughs> but it was uh, quite good when it was there. It was only in American soil that that, that would happen, and, uh, you know, where they had uh, the contacts and things like that. But it was, you know, it was quite a surprise that every time, every time you got off an aeroplane or something, you had a brand new car waiting for you. <laughs> and can you tell us about Freddy Fox? I know your children referred to him as Uncle Freddy. Yeah. He was a close acquaintance? Yes, he was. He was, uh, he had a... Uh, we were very friendly, uh, our families were very friendly, and friendly. but he was a, uh, what shall I say, a, just a pilot like me, but he was uh, a very, what shall I say, fastidious and, and thorough, and uh, uh, we made a pretty good team together, you know. So we were both, uh, the, the company made us their development pilots, and that's when we got to, uh, uh, do all the inspections on new aeroplanes and test fly them and things like that. We, we we worked as a team together, and it was too much for one person to do it. But the, the, the two of us, it, it like to do a, an aeroplane you know, like the seven four seven, the the one, the one up there. Uh, it would it would take you a full day to check all of the. The inventory on the aeroplane and things like that and to make sure you'd have to check that it was absolutely good and, and functioning correctly and what have you and then having done that then you'd take the aeroplane up and put it through all of its maneuvers in the air and make sure that uh, all of those things worked without any problems and uh, it was just a it was you, you know, you might have said a boring job, but it was a, it was a very, uh, what should I say, uh, responsible position that uh, you went, when you came down and you said, okay, that aeroplane's all right, <laughs> you cross your fingers and hope it is. <laughs> <laughs> they only retired the Boeing 747 the other day. What did you think about that when they went out with the kangaroo? Well, I, look, I turned up my logbook and the, 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 the registration number of the aeroplane, I got it in my old book, and it was in 1971 uh, that I flew it into Sydney. Now, whether it was the same aeroplane or not, I don't know, because once an aeroplane, what shall I say, is uh, put into the graveyard, its, its numbers can come up on another aeroplane. Well, I, I think it was the same aeroplane. It's almost too much of a coincidence, is it? That yeah, yeah, you flew the first one over and yeah, yeah. the last one's leaving with the same right. registration. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have an attachment to that plane or not really? I mean, it, it made travel so affordable for so many people wanting to travel. Oh, it in... became uh, an aeroplane in the fleet, that's that was all. But uh, you know, it's just one of those things. And, uh, you just flew it all around the world, uh, you know, when you went to England or Tokyo or uh, San Francisco or uh, New York or someplace like that, you know, you, you, you're going somewhere all the time. Was travel cheap back then? Oh, it's, uh, 
with you know just another airplane really <laughs> you were you were given perks of the job though weren't you yeah, Qantas? We, we, yes, yes we were we we the uh the chief executive of Qantas was uh we, we'd see o'turner he was a very hard man but he was you know if you did everything you you want he wanted you to do he was a very solid man very good man and uh he made sure that uh, you know that you were looked after, and on occasion he said to me, he said, "Look, I want you to take this aeroplane so and so uh, on such and such a date to, from here to there." And uh, he said, uh, "Why don't you take your wife with you?" Okay, I'm saying, right, I'll have to pack your bags. You <laughs> we're off. Coming with, we're off. <laughs> but he was a terrific guy. Tell us about you travelling with your family and you being allowed to travel with your family on the plane. You travelled all around the world, didn't you? Yeah. Never ever thought of it. <laughs> In that way, you know, I was just there and things like that. I was just another passenger and, uh, and I just, you just treat it as it's such. There's nothing, nothing special about it. That was it. Did you enjoy travelling with your family? What are some of the trips that you did? Well, you know, if I was flying the aeroplane and things like that, uh, they, I, you know, they, they were just somebody, just another passenger. And uh, uh, you, you didn't sort of... Uh, you got off the aeroplane and made the company again, you just didn't know they were there, really. <laughs> <laughs> no special treatment? No special treatment. <laughs> Tell us about, uh, um, I guess, a few things that stick in your mind, a few trips. Do you have any memories of, of scary moments that you got into with the plane? No. <laughs> Nothing. Is that what all pilots say? Well, I mean, it's just another day's work, you know. It's, 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 you, I bet you have uh, some episodes like you, you, know, you lose an engine and... Uh, mid-ocean and all that sort of business and you finish up the flight on three engines and things like that you probably chew your finger that's a little bit because if you went down to two engines it would be, be all the way down sort of thing. <laughs> Did you ever land in the ocean or ever crash a plane with passengers on board? I never bent an aeroplane. Well never done. In, in the, in the whole of my life I never, I never even damaged an aircraft. And how many hours did you log? Like twenty one thousand. Wow. And never been to play. That's impressive. Yeah. And that that goes to even my training and things like that. Wow. What shall I say? When you you become part of the machine, that's that's the that's the thing. And uh, you only treat the machine as and only ask it to do what it was built to do. Don't ask it to do anything else. And that's one of the secrets of, what shall I say, not bending an aeroplane. <laughs> <laughs> can you, can um, you tell us about your time at flying for the Royals? Well, I mean, uh, you know, you'd uh, meet them before they got on board the aeroplane and, uh, you know, welcome them aboard and, and let, them, let them have the be used to the whole of the aeroplane, you know, in other words, they were free to go anywhere they liked in the aircraft. 
That was pretty good. That set up behind you and watch you and talk to you about the fly and things like that. Prince Charles and his father and things like that. They were. His father was a very much of a vicious man. But once you accepted that, you got on pretty well. Then. And uh, he was uh, he's quite a gentleman, quite a, quite a gentleman, really. Yeah. How did that come about, that job? Company just said, you know, you, you've got this flight and you've got the uh, Duke of Edinburgh flying with you. Hmm? That's about all you go and do the job, that's all there is to it. So were you based in England then? No, no, I was based in Sydney. Wow. Yeah. Huh? Can you remember some of the trips that you did with them? Oh yes, uh, you know, some of the conversations and things like that. That's, uh, that's, uh, they're pretty, what's they, ordinary people. And they, they usually ask, uh, what shall I say, sometimes uh, audacious questions and things like that. <laughs> but uh, you got around it. And tell us about your wife, Mary. Where did you meet her? I was working for a company, Fire Protection Engineers, Wormel Brothers, in Sydney. I started off as an office boy in the drawing office. And I graduated to a, 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 a draftsman in the office. While I was doing that job, uh, you know, the boss's car and things like that, it, it, company be an aria or something like that and he'd leave his car ahead and he'd want it somewhere else and he uh, for some unknown reason he reckoned I was okay and I used to drive his car for him and make sure it was where he wanted it all the time and uh, it came across that uh, we had to do a fire protection on the Port Piri power station and uh, it, uh, the normal draftsman wasn't uh, available. And he called me up and said, could you, get, could you think you could go across and do the uh, measuring up at the, uh, the Port Perry power station? I said, sure, I'm sure I could. And uh, I got my first ride in an aeroplane. <laughs> Went across to Adelaide at the DC-2 and uh, went across on Saturday and I wasn't due to get up to Port Period where the power station was until the Monday. So my mother had a, a second cousin living in Underdale in Adelaide and I, I rang her up when I got there and, and she said, uh, can I grow and see? She said, sure. And when I got out there, she said, oh, we're, we're having a uh, going to a, a Masonic dance tonight. Would you like to come? I said, yeah, but I haven't got a partner. She said, I'll get you one. Oh. <laughs> and it was a girl at the back. Mary <laughs> uh, used to do all the shopping and things like that for her. So she got the girl at the back and uh, we went to the, the dance and went for a walk and held hands and, so oh. that, and that was it. <laughs> And you met Mary just before you went to war, didn't you? Yeah. Did you and Mary communicate at all while you were over in England? 
we we wrote to each other every second day. Every second day. Every second day, if we could, you know, if we could manage it uh, with the uh, with the duties that we had, but we uh, we did it, and uh, there it was for three years, every second day. And then when you came back, did you just sweep her off her feet? Absolutely. I asked her to marry me straight away, and she said yes, and we got married. Uh, and then tell us about your family that happened shortly afterwards. Yeah, she came to live with us in Sydney, and uh, we finally had to find some accommodation, which was very hard to get. And we we found a place in Collaroy where we could live on a veranda. Just a veranda. Just a veranda. And it was owned by a very officious old lady. And uh, we, that's where we had our first uh, life together. It was on that veranda. On a veranda. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. And after three years, yeah, it was, was very good. And uh, Terry was born there while we were there. Um, she, uh, we, we were just across the, the road at Collaroy from the beach, main beach. And, and, uh, they used to spend a lot of time on the beach and things like that when I was away. And, and, uh, when Terry was 18 months, we managed to finally get a house of our own. And, uh, that's just, you know, it was, we, we did it the hard way. And how did Mary cope with you being away so much? Well, she was she was the secretary to uh, Norman Meyer in Adelaide, and she was a very efficient uh, secretary, and she just kept herself very busy uh, working for her boss and things like that, and. Uh, that was it. <laughs> they didn't like they when, when when I came on the scene and they lost it to me. They they didn't like it, but she was a, a very sought after secretary for the or Norman Moore. He was he, just one of those things. How many years were you married? Seventy seventy three. Wow. We knew each other for 77 years and we were married 73 years. That's incredible. She was 91 when she died. And what made you move to Dubbo? We had a home up in, I owned some properties in Caloundra and then we had a, a house up in uh, Malilaba and uh, we uh, the river came up and it divided two ways. Our house was right on the, the point of two rivers there. It was a two-storey place. And we were quite happy there. Uh, Terry got his job down here. And Mary said to me, 
I'd like to be near too if anything happened to you. Okay, we sold up and came down here. Tell her. And tell us about your daughter. Luella, hi. She's a unique person. There's no doubt about her. She's still a very unique person today, believe you me. <laughs> but uh, she was a nurse and uh, she worked away. She had a couple of very good nursing beds and things like that. And uh, they, you know, had a very strong bond between the people she worked with. And they're still there today. And, uh, it's, uh, you know, it's a, it's a pretty good example of, of friendship. Yeah, can uh, you tell us a bit about more when you grew up during the Great Depression? You would have been very young. Well, it all started. Look, I used to get up at six o'clock in the morning, or for half past five, but I'd be out on the road at six o'clock. And I'd have a selling papers, and I used to sell papers down the uh, local bus stop until eight o'clock. And uh, then I'd come, come back and have breakfast, go to school. And in the afternoon I'd come home and I'd, uh, Dad had, they, they had a mixed business and they used to do deliveries and I used to do the afternoon deliveries. Uh, well, he would do some in the morning and things like that, there'd be the odd one in the afternoon and I'd do that then. Well, it seemed to have some, something to do. But uh, we lived at Asbury and uh, Smithy was uh, had done a couple of good flights and things like that. And I, I was interested in aircraft. I, and one Saturday, I I rode my bike, which was 11 miles from Ashbury, out to Mascot, and uh, that's when I started to uh, get to know people. <laughs> um, I, I, wash the wheels of the aeroplane, the mud off the wheels and things like that. And uh, I was just a boy around the place, but uh, you know, all very friendly with everybody. And, uh, tell us, tell us, you wanted to become a draftsman, didn't you, for a while there? Yeah, well, I, I, that was fairly automatic. I, when I was working, I started as an office boy in the, in the drawing office for Well Brothers. They were fire protection engineers. And, uh, you know, I, I was just, I go for everything, for everybody wanted something. I, I, I was just the message boy. And one day, one of the people got sick and they uh, had to get a drawing out. And the boss said to me, Do you think you can do it? I said, I'll, I'll have a go. And I did it. He, he, said, he was quite happy with what, what I gave him. and. Uh, from that day on, I became a draftsman. Uh, they uh, kept giving me work every day, and that's when they sent me across to uh, to Adelaide to the measure up the power station at Port Perry. And That's where I met Mary. I was only what sixteen years of age. <laughs> Very young. Yeah. And can, can you tell us about your siblings? Uh, five, five. Uh, there were three girls and three boys. And uh, Lorna, the, the eldest one, was about, uh, 
She was about 20 years older than me. It must have been a busy household. Well, it was during the Depression and Mum and Dad had this, this fixed business and it was out, you had to open at you know, about six, seven o'clock in the morning and you wouldn't shut till about 10 o'clock at night. And they had somebody serving behind the counter all the time. And the, the children used to run the household and do all the jobs and the odd jobs, what have you. And it seemed normal to us. It wasn't, it wasn't a chore or anything like that. That was that you had to live that way. That and you did. And uh, so I say I used to do a paper run every morning, and I'd go down and sell papers at the local bus shop, and come back at eight o'clock, and I'd be on my way to school at up past eight, and over at three, and start delivering the groceries for Dad and things like that. But it seemed, seemed quite normal. It wasn't, wasn't, it wasn't an effort, it wasn't a chore or anything like that. It was living, that sort of was. Can you um, tell us about the day that you got married? Gee, it was, <laughs> it was a long time ago. Yes, well, it all happened. Now, Mary used to live, uh, her father died when she was very young. Her mother used to live with her sister and she lived with her mother and uh, it was quite a, what should I say, a full household. But uh, it was a home wedding and uh, it was just a wedding at all. It went off quite quickly, it was officiated by Reverend Sansa and uh, that was it. Where did you get married at? In Adelaide, at, at her home in Adelaide we got married. Yeah. Did you have a honeymoon? Yes. Yes, yes we came back to Sydney from Adelaide for the honeymoon. And uh, we spent her time getting to know the family and things like that. And, uh, it was quite, quite it's satisfying, it worked, worked right, quite well. And we did all the trips we could do around Sydney and the Timber and all the other places around. And we had quite a nice time. Did Mary love travelling as well around the world? Yeah, she quite enjoyed it. She, she really did. And uh, was, she became just as familiar as me with uh, cities like London and She'd do, do um, special places, she'd like to go shopping and things like that, and she'd do all the shopping there. And, and, um, uh, London was the best place. She came to, came to Tokyo with me a couple of times, but that was too hard. The language wasn't, you couldn't uh, move around very, very well. But uh, she'd come to uh, Hong Kong and we'd slip there in Singapore. And, uh, but she liked London most of all, and, uh, purely for the shopping. And the, <laughs> and, uh, Can you tell us about your time living in San Francisco? San Francisco is a special place. A lovely home, lovely city, lovely place. And, uh, 
Morgan Sabe used to enjoy every minute of it there. It had something about it. It still does. It still does, yes. yes. What would you like for your grandchildren who are going to be listening to this podcast or your great-grandchildren? What's some, I guess, advice that you'd like them to know? Take some time before you can talk seriously to them. I've got uh, three granddaughters up in uh, Raby Bay, up in Queensland. The, the eldest one, Jessica, she's got a great future ahead of her. She's a rower. And she rows very well. And, uh, you know, she uh, holds the head of the river. She was the head of the river for her age group in Brisbane. And, uh, Everything she does, she does it well. You know, she, so uh, I only hope, hope she meets somebody that uh, can keep that business going. But I, we don't get to see them very often. We talk to them on the uh, on Skype quite a bit. But uh, and she's got a, a sister and a, a very younger sister than that. And they're all got. A, a character that's worthy of note, <laughs> and uh, their father is a what's name, a very well fitted out man, if I might say so. He's a, a director for for Ledley's, and. Uh, he comes up with some pretty rare ideas at times for Lindley's and things like that. <laughs> They've got a lovely home up there in Raby Bay, right at the end, in the point. And so your advice would be, whatever you do, do it well? Do it well. Do it well. If, you, if you're going to be there, do it well, do it properly, and uh, always try and satisfy the whoever's directing you to do their, their best wishes in other words. And I think that, that pays off right through life. Doesn't matter what how you do it, as long as you work that principle all the time. But uh, I don't think I had anything special except I was willing to work and work hard. That's all I was good. Wow. That's about all I can say. This episode was produced by Rihanna Mooney. Music by Nate Skulls. Make sure you subscribe and leave a review if you're feeling generous and follow our journey on all of our social media pages.